Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your great love for us, for the ways that you reveal yourself to us, show us, Father, that you care for us, that in all things we can trust you. Father, we confess to you this morning that we are sinners, that we do not obey your word the way that we should, that we do not think of you the way that we should, that we do not desire you the way that we should. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us and we rest in the promises of your word that we find plentiful mercy and forgiveness in you. But, Father, we don't simply ask for forgiveness of sins. We ask, Lord, that you would grant to us repentance, true repentance, where, Father, we would not only seek forgiveness, but that we would also turn away from our sins and turn toward Christ. And so, Father, as we rest in him today, in his perfect obedience, I pray, Lord, that our love for him would grow. Father, please bless us as we come to your word together. I pray, Father, that we would be changed by it that our hearts would not be hardened against your truth, but that, Father, that we would know and believe that you are God and that in that knowledge, we would fear you rightly. Speak to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turning your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. As we get to Exodus 20 today, we find ourselves in what could almost be considered a different book than the first 19 chapters. So far, we have seen primarily narrative exposition, telling us the story of Moses and Israel and God's rescue and leadership of his people out of Egypt. But in the second half of the book of Exodus, we find a focus, a particular focus, on God's law. There are still narrative elements to be sure, but the primary purpose of the text of Exodus 20 through 40 is God conveying His covenant words and rules to His people. And that begins with the ones that we commonly know as the Ten Commandments. For the next 10 weeks, we will be going one by one through each of these 10 in order to consider each one in depth as to what they mean for us as Christians. And my hope is that as we go through these each week, that we would commit ourselves to loving God in obedience to His moral law. Not because we must obey in order to be saved, but because those who love God love His law. In Psalm 119, verse 97, we find this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And my hope is that through this study, through the Ten Commandments, that we could say, like the psalmist, that we love God's law. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at the first three verses today. 
And the first thing we're going to talk about as we look at the first three verses of Exodus 20 is that we find that God's law is written on our hearts. If you got a bulletin when you came in this morning or picked up one of our sermon listening guides from the back table, you'll see that we have two points this morning, and that's our first one, written on our hearts. So let's read together Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We left off in the story of Exodus with the people of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai. If you weren't with us last week, you heard me explain that I'm not intentionally mispronouncing that word, that that is the actual Hebrew pronunciation of that mountain. It's okay to say Sinai, but in Hebrew it would be Sinai, and actually Miss Miriam let me know that it's also pronounced Sinai in Portuguese. So she's right on board with me on the Mount Sinai train. And so Moses had already gone up to the top of the mountain three different times. But chapter 19 concluded with Moses coming back down. And it's at that point that we are told that the events of Exodus 20 take place. We're told here that God spoke these words. So the first time that the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are given, they are spoken directly to the entirety of the nation of Israel. You may have thought that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses by God for the first time up on top of the mountain where it was only him and God. Nope. All Israel heard God speak from the mountain. All Israel heard God give these ten commandments. None of them could claim ignorance. None of them could say, well, we didn't know that that wasn't allowed. That's especially important because not to spoil things, but in a few chapters, we're going to find out that Israel decides that Moses has been gone on the mountain too long, and so they need a new God to worship, and they build themselves an idol. They have Aaron build themselves an idol, and they know that this is wrong because they hear God tell them these Ten Commandments. They also can't claim that Moses made it up. Some people take offense to Pastors and teachers calling them to obedience to God's word, saying, well, I don't believe that it says that. I think you're just twisting that. I think you're making that up. No one in Israel could say, well, Moses is just trying to boss us around, telling us God said things that God never really said. They all hear it. They all know it. Because God tells all of them. That's also something that we need to understand that sets these particular commandments apart from the rest of the law. Because it is only these particular commandments that God speaks to the entirety of the nation of Israel in this way. The rest of the law that God gives to Moses, he gives to Moses separately to convey to the people. But these ten are so significant, are so meaningful, are so important that God wants to make sure that all Israel hears these words from his mouth, so to speak, because God doesn't have a mouth. And so God begins this, these ten commandments, these ten words, with what some people refer to as the preamble in verse 2 
where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He begins this this, this telling of the Ten Commandments, giving of the Ten Commandments, by pointing to his authority, his standing as God. And so what follows, these Ten Commandments are rooted directly in God's authority as God. Only God can give commandments like this. I, as your pastor, have some level of authority over you as a member of our church. But I do not have the authority to give commandments to you in this way. I cannot tell you, you must do this or that unless I'm quoting to you from God's word or making a relative inference from God's word because the Lord gives us principles by which to discern these things. Because God is the creator of all things, he has absolute dominion over all things. He has the divine prerogative to enforce his perfect morality over creation. God alone has that right. God alone can say, I made everything and thus everything must, must operate in the way that I say. Everything must operate in the way that I say. Only God can do that. This is why God was just to judge Egypt. This is why he was just. Some people would raise an objection. Well, Egypt didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. God never spoke to them from a mountain. God never gave his law to them. But here's the truth. God has given us his moral law. And we are all obligated to follow it. And he has, in particular, caused us to know what his moral law is in our own nature. God created us in such a way that this law is written on our hearts. Paul, in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, says this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul, in Romans 2, is, try, is laying out kind of a systematic theology. And he is explaining that all of the Jews are guilty and sentenced to condemnation because they have had the law and they have not followed the law. But Gentiles are not, they don't have an excuse because this moral law of God has been written upon their hearts and they know it. They know it. Now, in their unrighteousness, they have suppressed the truth. They have convinced themselves of lies. They have told themselves that their conduct is good and right, when in fact their conduct is depraved and wicked. But they have to actively do that, because they know it. They know it. 
Paul is showing us here that the moral law, right and wrong, are naturally known to humanity, even though our own sinfulness has twisted it and often abandons it altogether. As Paul says a chapter earlier when he says, like I said, in our unrighteousness we suppress the truth. You can see this in small children. Those of you who have raised children, who are still raising small children, who are around small children, when they do things that are wrong, they naturally hide them. They go and hide them. If they take something that does not belong to them, they typically will go and stash it, stick it under their pillow, hide it under their bed, put it in a pile of dirty clothes in their closet, whatever it may be. They know I'm not supposed to take this. Even if you've never told them, don't steal things. They know naturally this is wrong for me to do. It's why they wait until mom and dad aren't looking before they hit their sibling. It's because they know in themselves. This is that conscience that we talk about. It is God's natural law, his moral law that is written upon our hearts. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1.27, we're told God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And a part of God creating us in his image is him imbuing us with his morality. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, we're told, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them morally upright. He impressed the nature of his morality upon them. And then they sinned. And as a result... All men now are born in sin. And women too, ladies, you're not off the hook. All humanity is born in sin. And as a result, we all are condemned because we do not obey God's moral law. Our church's confession puts it this way in chapter 19, paragraph 1. It says, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it and gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. So this was written on Adam's heart specifically, and all who came from Adam are thus bound by it. That includes us. You didn't come from somewhere else. We are all descended from Adam. Because of this truth, we should rightly hold these particular commands as being morally binding on humanity, and we should see them as revealed particularly in the Ten Commandments. The next paragraph of our confession goes on and says, the same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God, and the other six are duty to humanity. So we find that this moral law, these Ten Commandments, are the revelation of God expressing that moral law that was written upon our hearts. That's, how, that's what we find in the Ten Commandments. So, again, if we talk about this law being written on Adam's heart as being binding for all of us, then that means that the Ten Commandments, which are God's revelation of that moral law, 
are also binding for us. Again, we go back to the uniqueness of how these were delivered to his people, right? These were the ones that God spoke to all Israel from the mountain. These are significant, and this is why. That's why those were specifically set apart for all of Israel to know. Further, because the Lord personalizes himself to the people of Israel, referring to himself as the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, when he gives these commandments, and because we know that Israel is a stand-in for the true Israel, the church, then we also understand that these Ten Commandments are for us to be obligations just as they are, just as they were for Israel. So no matter which way you slice it, whether you look at us as humanity descended from Adam or whether you look at us as the true people of God, there is no escape from the fact that these Ten Commandments are moral obligations for us as Christians to uphold. Our confession again in paragraph 5 of chapter 19, the moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified as well as others. This obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. Nor does Christ in any way dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. And just to be clear, when I read from our confession, I'm not reading from our confession as an authoritative document to say you must do what it says. I'm reading from our confession as a succinct explanation of what I am teaching you this morning. That's the, that's the purpose of me using the confession. So that you know, when you want to go back and review this, you can look through our confession of faith and look at chapter 19 and say, okay, I understand this, I understand this, because Pastor Corey referenced them. That's the purpose of me saying that. I don't hold our confession in the same light as I hold Scripture. But our confession is built upon Scripture. And that's proven in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus himself tells us that the law is still in effect. It's not passing away. Now, when Jesus says the law, typically he is speaking of the moral law. Because there are also ceremonial laws and judicial laws. Those things are not in effect. We do not live in a theocracy under the rule of God in the same way that Israel did. And so we don't have those same requirements. But the moral law is universal. It is for all people at all times. And you can also recognize that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are kind of an umbrella for the remainders of the law. Right? The first four have to do with how we relate to the Lord. And then there's multitudes of laws in Israel's codes that talk about how to worship, that talk about how to do these things to the glory of God. And then the second, the second table, the last six, are about how we relate to one another. And there's plenty of laws about that. You're supposed to not kill. Well, what happens if someone does? What do you do then? Right? 
And so that's the whole purpose. And Jesus himself tells us that we can actually sum up the moral law even further, right? When someone comes to him and says, what are the great, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's a summation of the first four commandments. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summation of the six that follow. These commandments do not give us eternal life. It is important for us to understand that. When we teach, when I'm preaching through the Ten Commandments, when I say you are obligated to keep these commandments, I'm not saying to you, do this and you will get to heaven. Because you can't. You can't do these things. You are a sinner who has already broken all ten of these commandments. I don't care how young you are, you've already broken all ten. Especially when you consider how Jesus encourages us to reframe our understanding. When he says, you've committed murder if you've hated your brother in your heart, for example. So these commandments do not get us into heaven because we cannot fulfill our moral duty to the Lord. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this moral law, as revealed to Israel here in the Ten Commandments, was given after the promise of salvation in the seed of the woman that was given in Genesis. As soon as the fall happened, the Lord said, I am going to make a way because you will not do what is necessary because you can't. And so we consider the law of God to be, as I said before, an obligation to God specifically in love to Him. We do it because we love Him. Think of it in the context of a marriage. There are many ways that husbands can show love to their wives. And every wife is different. So what shows love to one wife may not show love to someone else's wife. Your wife... Might, be most, might feel most loved when you wash the dishes. Your wife might feel most loved when you take all of your children out of the house to give her a moment of peace. Your wife might feel most loved when you bring her flowers. Whatever it may be, you show your love to your wife by doing those things. But it is possible to not love your wife while still doing those things. Just because you wash the dishes, that does not mean that you love your wife. But if you love your wife, you probably will wash the dishes. Do you see the distinction there? You cannot love by doing, but you show your love through doing. It's the same thing with us following the commands of the Lord. They also serve other purposes in our lives. They reveal sin. They help us to fight against sin. They bring joy to us when we realize, oh, I've gone a whole day without breaking the sixth commandment. Praise the Lord, whatever it may be. The law serves many purposes. None of them are to bring us to heaven. 
The main one being to show us how deep our need for Christ is. Just in the first commandment, love the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. We fail so miserably at it that our first response should be, I am so grateful for Jesus because I'm out on commandment number one. I'm done. So with the right understanding of our commandments firmly established, let's consider what the first commandment entails. You shall have no other gods before me. Your translation might also say no other gods besides me. Either way is fine. The first commandment is relatively simple in its presentation. It's not overly complicated. You'll have no other gods but me. Israel had just come out of a land that worshipped more than 1,400 so-called gods. Egypt had more than 1,400 different gods. And not a single one of them was the one true God. In fact, all around Israel were people groups that worshipped false gods, typically multiple gods. And so Israel, it's so significant that Israel was told things like Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's why it's so significant. Israel was to be an outlier, worshiping the one true God and Him only, and devoting the entirety of themselves to Him. You see, a part of why many of these cultures invented so many gods is because they could seek more palatable answers elsewhere. If one God... Let's say you were barren and you wanted to have children. You would pray to the one God. Well, that one God wasn't answering your prayers. So I'll just invent another God, a fertility God. And I'll pray specifically to that God. And maybe that God will answer my prayers. This is why, though the commandment is simple in presentation, it is anything but simple in its application. You see, we tend to think of idolatry as an intentional decision to worship something other than God. We think of idolatry in terms of the second commandment, to not make for yourself an idol, right? But the truth is, the first commandment is more about idolatry than the second commandment is. The first commandment is more about idolatry. Because here's the truth. Anything, anything, that takes our attention, trust, devotion, or affections away from God is an idol and is in violation of the first commandment. Now, you immediately are going to say, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. I am solely, completely, totally devoted to the Lord. I would never do that. To which I say, baloney. Because here is the truth. Anything, anything that even entices you to not obey in anything contained within God's law 
is something that you hold in higher esteem than the Lord. And that could be bad things, or it could be good things. I have seen many Christians make an idol out of their family. I've seen many Christians place their family above everything else. Well, I'm sorry, I can't obey the Lord's command because I have family obligations. Well, that's not a legitimate excuse. That's idolatry. And this factors into the other nine commandments because they all flow out of this one. For example, if you murder, you are guilty of loving yourself more than God because God said don't murder. If you commit adultery, you are guilty of loving sex more than God because God said don't commit adultery. You see how this works? If God said don't do this thing, and you proceed to do it, you're saying, I'm above God. I can decide for myself if this is okay for me to do. And that is idolatry. Being what the word commands is ultimately an issue of keeping the first commandment. Doing what the word requires is our way of showing that we truly have no other gods besides Yahweh. That's how it works. Just in the same way that you can't say, I love my wife and never help her, never show affection for her, never do anything for her, and expect that to be true. You might believe it in your own mind, but what you're doing is by your unrighteousness, you are suppressing the truth. Devotion to the Lord is more than verbalizing it. It actually comes out in your actions. Nothing, nothing, nothing can be more important than God and what he calls us to do. Yahweh demands exclusive loyalty. Because his perfection demands it. This is not an ego thing, right? This is not God with a big head thinking more of himself than he should. The reason why we are offended or bothered by people who are full of themselves is because we very easily see their flaws. People who think too highly of themselves than they should, it's very easy for us to go, yeah, but you're not perfect because you have this and this and this. You can look really hard at the Lord looking for imperfections, you're never going to find them. God alone is entitled to all worship and devotion because he has no flaws. He is deserving of it. Further, because God is perfect and holy, it would be immoral for him to permit worship of anything other than him. God would be sinning if he allowed and permitted in his perfect morality for us to worship another God besides him. You need to understand that. This is not just God saying, give me my props because I want them. This is morality. This is perfection. And if God did that, he would be saying, well, this is more worthy than I am. And that would be him saying he's not really God. The first commandment 
is about recognizing God as God and our lives bearing that out. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing will come before me. Nothing ever. Already Israel has failed in this. Already they have grumbled. Already they have complained. Already they have disobeyed. And yet God is still, still with them. He is still giving them his law. Why? Because he loves them. And that is a picture of who God is. That despite their failure, despite their moral failings, God is still with his people. He still brought them to himself. He is still revealing himself to them and saying, this is who I am. Be my people and I will be your God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That is the call upon us as Christians. And so I encourage you today, I I implore you today to commit yourself to loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it is our moral obligation to do so. And the first way that we do that, the first way we fulfill that obligation is by realizing that we cannot do it due to sin. And so we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ. We call upon the Holy Spirit that the Lord has given us for our good and say, I believe, help my unbelief. And maybe you're here today and you have not thrown yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. You do not know the good, joyous presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Please hear me when I say this. The Lord has made a way in Christ for you to fulfill his commands because Christ has perfectly fulfilled them for us. You can try and try and try to do this, but it's going to be like beating your head against a brick wall. You will not succeed. But if you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have violated the first commandment. Today can be the day that you too can be given the perfect father-loving obedience of the son. Today can be that day. I encourage you to seek me out, to seek out Pastor Michael, and we would love to share with you how you too can be found in Christ, how you too can have no other gods before the one true God. Church, for those of us who are in Christ, the calling upon us is to make it known that we are a people who have no other gods before the one true God. 
that we are a people who are wholly devoted to him, that we are only, only devoted to him, that all of our other commitments and devotions and affections look like hatred in light of our love and affection and obedience to the one true God. That is the calling upon the life of God's people. And so let us commit together for that to be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we are so undeserving of your love. So undeserving of your continued devotion and affection to us. Of the fact that you keep your promises to us. So Lord, we rest in your grace today. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts and shape us so that we are people who are known that we have no other gods. No other gods. And Lord, if any are here today that do not know you in Christ, I pray, Father, that today would be the day that you would save them. That you would draw them to yourself and give them life. We pray this in Christ's name.